time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Whoa. Boy, I thought the weeks go by fast. <laughs> the weekends go by quicker. Looking forward to uh, Thanksgiving coming up on Thursday. Y'all ready for uh, spending time with your family, eating lots of turkey, experiencing that tryptophan post-turkey food coma, watching a little football? Ah, nothing better than All right, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. What is my job? My job is to dish up a daily dose of biblical discernment. And this is where we take thoughts captive and make them obedient to Christ. How do we do that? Well, the way we do it is by asking the question, is what you're hearing biblical or unbiblical? Is this Christian pastor or person that's talking about religion in general teaching you what God's Word actually says? Or are they off on some kind of... uh, a tangent where their opinions have been elevated to uh, word of God status or visions that they've received from on high, or at least they claim they've received them from on high, are elevated to the point where they are equal with God's word and, and somehow binding upon the Christian. Or is what they're saying really, really, really from the word of God? Now, folks, I get a lot of email on a daily basis, so much so that uh, there is no way I could possibly... Uh, keep keep up with it. So uh, on a daily basis, we will pick some emails to go over and, um, and we will, uh, we will go over them. Although today we're going to do something a little bit different. Some of you have been requesting the, the emails have come in and you all have spoken so clearly, Chris, we need another good sermon. I, (laughs) I get emails from people saying, what is with uh, this, you know, all of these these terrible things. They feel like their mind is being sucked out through their ears. At, you know, when I uh, post, when I review stuff that uh, is anything but Christian. And so today, what we're going to do is we're actually going to do it a little differently. We're going to start off with. We're not going to do listener email. Uh, we may not even get to it today. I I know some of you are a little shocked. <gasps> He's falling behind on listener email, and you may not even get to it. Yeah, I, I know. I know. But what we're going to be doing today is we're going to be listening to a really good sermon. This was a sermon that was preached at Faith Lutheran Church in Capistrano Beach, California, by a man who has no pretenses of being uh, an incredible scholar. He's he's unpretentious. He's not arrogant. Just a humble, great parish pastor, a man who I uh, can proudly say is my pastor, and that's uh, the Reverend Ron Hodel. And uh, he preached a, a sermon yesterday about Judgment Day, and it's so good it, it, that um, I, I am excited to share it with you all. And so what we're going to be doing is we're actually going to be sharing uh, that sermon with you today, and it's about Judgment Day. It's about the passage of the parable of the—well, uh, parable if you would—the uh, story of the sheep and the goat uh, judgment. Well, we've talked about this uh, passage before on this program, but— uh, Ron Hodel's treatment of this topic was just stellar, stellar, Christ-centered to say the least. And there was stuff in there that uh, just from you know me hearing it was not only refreshing but extremely exciting. And so what I'm going to do here is we'll go ahead and <clears throat> we'll cue this thing up. 
And um, funny enough, I was able to rip earlier the uh, the 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 lesson itself, and then I had to have my son help me. Can you believe I? I'm so old now that I have to have my son help me with with ripping things. You'd think I would know better, but uh, we'll go ahead and start off by playing. The uh, gospel reading itself, and this is uh, Pastor Ron Hodel from yesterday's sermon uh, on Judgment Day. Is this good news or bad news? And so we start with uh, his uh, his reading of the gospel lesson uh, from uh, from the Gospel of Matthew. Here, and without any further ado, here we go. The Holy Gospel according to Saint Matthew, the twenty fifth chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus said. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all His angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on His left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed! into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no drink. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. All right. So there's our gospel reading. It doesn't sound like there's a lot of gospel in there, does it? No. <laughs> you you read a passage like that and you go, that was the gospel? <laughs> Your knees are knocking. <laughs> you know, hey, Judgment Day is not an easy topic. And, you know, we're like kind of laughing and making light of it. But, man, this is it, deadly scary stuff. Because each of us knows that, you know, that there's going to be a day when we're going to have to stand before God. And a passage like this could just, if you interpret it wrong, you're going to end up doing real damage to someone's faith. I mean, you know, if you focus in on the good works that they're being, you know, that God is praising them for or that they didn't do what God is condemning them for, and you and you hinge that on the on the works, then you're going to do violence to this passage and uh, probably scare somebody right out of the faith, possibly. So, um, so that's the uh, the gospel reading for the day. We're going to get into the sermon less the end of the sermon itself here. 
And I really, really am excited. I, I, I cannot wait to show this one. It, yesterday at the end of it, I looked over at my wife and I just went, wow. <laughs> wow. There, I mean, there's some stuff here that I just I can't wait to go over it a second time and really kind of you know pick it apart because it's it's that good. So you know, this is a gift that I'm giving to every one of our listeners today. We're doing a good sermon to start off with from the gift service. From the gift service, right? Yeah. <laughs> but actually, there was no gift service yesterday because we had that voters meeting. Remember? That's correct. Yeah, I try to stay away from those things. <laughs> just so you know, in the second half of our program today, we're actually going to be playing. Um, uh, remember last week we talked about the uh, Charter for Compassion, and we played that video from that woman. Her name is uh, Karen Armstrong, and she's one of the head gurus of the, uh, on the Council of Sages for this uh, compassion group that's basically claiming that compassion is not something that uh, you know that you can't you can't be compassionate if you believe in dogma and and you know exclusive claims like that. We're going to pick that apart. We've got a, a lesson, not a lesson, but a talk that she did. She did a TED talk. And uh, we're going to be listening to that today and picking that apart in the second half of the show. But let's get into uh, the sermon from uh, Pastor Ron Hodel on Judgment Day. And uh, let's see what he does with this uh, passage that uh, doesn't already doesn't sound like a lot of good news because it's talking about the end of the world. Yeah, that's what we should do. We should play that uh, that song. It's the end of the world. Never mind. All right, we dive into the sermon now. Here we go. God's grace, His mercy, and peace be multiplied among you, my dear friends and fellow Christians. Judgment Day. We confess it in the creed when we say that Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead. We heard it in our gospel. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all His angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne, and before Him all the nations of the earth will be gathered together, and He will sort them one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. The sheep He will seat at His right hand, and the goats at His left. Is this a good news day or a bad news day? Is this something to look forward to? or anticipate with fear and dread. I guess it kind of depends on whether you see yourself as a sheep or as a goat. The key to our text this morning is simply this. Remember this, and the whole thing about faith and works and judgment will stay clear. Our works will be judged, but we will not be judged by our works. You can hear a collective sigh of relief after that. Good thing. Yeah. And it's very true. Our our works will be judged, but we will not be judged by our works. All right. Well, let's, Pastor Hodel, that may be foreign news to some people. As they read this passage, they're they're thinking that somehow uh, people's salvation and the sorting was based upon their good works. No, contrary, it was not. As Pastor Hodel continues, we continue. Let me explain. When the Son of Man comes in all of His glory and all His angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. It is Jesus who's going to come to judge the living and the dead. John John tells us this. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. On that awesome day, everyone will be gathered before Jesus' glorious throne, the living and the dead from every nation and tribe and people and language. Not one tiny scrap of creation is going to be kept 
out of this judgment. And know this too. It's not that the sheep are his, but the goats aren't. They are his sheep and they are his goats as well. They all grew up together in the same pen, just like the weeds and the wheat grew up together until the harvest. He died for the world, not just for the good or for the reformable. And no one will be able to escape this last great day. When the Son of Man is lifted up, He will draw all men to Himself. Jesus is the ultimate gravitational force in the whole universe. And nothing is going to be able to fly outside the orbit of His drawing force. All nations will be gathered together. Oh, the world? The world sees little of His kingdom and His power and His glory. And so the world is impressed by what it sees and not by what it hears. It deceives itself into thinking that the kingdom, the power, and the glory don't exist because I can't see them. But it does exist. And on the last day, it will show itself. Know this. It's not that God's kingdom and glory isn't around us right now. We would fall on our faces in awe as if dead if we could actually see with, if you will, spiritual eyes what is going on around us right now. Now, <laughs> got to stop there for a second. Gosh, that sounds completely contrary to what you would hear from some of these glory people. You know, the Todd Bentleys of the world, the Patricia Kings and and those people who are into toking the Holy Ghost. I mean, they seem to think that somehow, you know, the glory is just we can just somehow dance in it like it's some kind of a really cool spring rain. You know, Hodel, on the other hand, is basically saying if we could really see the, the glory, oh, we'd be we'd be on our faces if we were dead. <sighs> and I agree. Over and over and over again, when you read in Scripture, people who've experienced God's glory, um, you know, what was it, Isaiah, who said he was undone? No, it wasn't Isaiah. I forget. (laughs) Getting old. It's over and again, people who experience glory, who see angels in their glory, who, you know, even Moses had to be hidden in a cleft of a rock as God's glory went by. He can only see the backside of God. Otherwise, he'd be dead. You know, it over and over and over again, the glory of God is not something that's tameable or even safe for us to dwell in, particularly in our sinful nature. You know, um, so this is a good point that he's brought up here. So uh, and notice he's focusing it on, you know, on Christ. We can't fly out of his orbit. So he's got everyone. He's got the center orbit here being Jesus, not the earth. So I hope you astronomers aren't going to crucify him for such things. But we continue. God is present underneath all of history from beginning to end. What you and I see and experience and know by faith is nothing but the tip of the divine iceberg. But at this last moment, God will show himself again in one grand, never to be hidden again, unveiling. And Jesus the Son of Man so despised and rejected, is going to show Himself in the glory that has always been His. 
Everything's going to be brought out into the open and the mystery of the kingdom is going to be revealed for everybody to finally see. And everyone, faithful or not, will know it. (laughs) Again, you just, you look at yourself in light of the law and you sit there and go, oh no, oh no, oh no, oh no. (laughs) This is one of those topics that makes a lot of people nervous and myself included. You know, this is, you know, I, I'm fully aware of my sin. Uh, well, maybe I'm not. Actually, I'm, I'm very aware that I'm a sinful person, but I got to admit, I'm probably not even close to fully aware just how deeply wretched I am. And, um, and as you grow in your Christian faith, as you grow in your knowledge of the scriptures and you grow in your knowledge of just how demanding God's law is, you realize more and more and more, oh man, I ain't even close you know, if if I were being judged based upon my self improvement, <laughs> uh, aren't you glad you don't have to spend all your time in confession? Maybe I should. It might help. Anyway, okay, so we <laughs> we continue with uh, with this sermon here on Judgment Day from uh, Faith Lutheran Church in Capistrano Beach. Ron Hodel preaching. Everything that God's been doing and his presence will finally be understood. And at that point, there will be a separation. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. The sheep and the goats of Jesus' day. They all grazed together in the same field. But when evening came... When the animals were brought to the pen, the shepherd stood at the gate and he separated the sheep from the goats. At the great judgment, there will be a sorting. Goats on his left, sheep on his right. That's the picture Jesus always gives it. Sheep and goats grazing together and separated at the end of the day. Weeds and wheat all growing together in the same field until the harvest. The Pharisee and the publican both praying side by side in the same temple. The clean and the unclean existing together until the end. Even within me. This is a key this is a key part about this. Even within me. Yeah. Simul justus et peccator. Simultaneously justified and sinner at the same time. We Christians are paradox walking paradoxes. Sinner, 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 committing sin daily. And saint declared to be so, declared to be righteous through Christ, for Christ's sake. Oh, this I love what he's doing with this with this passage and how he's this isn't a doctoral dissertation. This is a real homily. I was talking to a, a gentleman last week uh, outside of our studios here in uh, in San Juan Capistrano, and uh, he's a Catholic uh, gentleman. He's a former evangelical, become a uh, become a Catholic, and he listens to PCR, which is you know, which is very interesting. And we were talking about you know the, all this the stuff that's going on in evangelicalism, and he said that any knucklehead can preach a sixty minute long sermon. Yeah, true. <laughs> that's what he said. <laughs> I, I thought that was a good point. He says, but it really takes a real craftsman. It takes a real pastoral craftsman to create a 20 minute homily, you know, or a 15, 20 minute homily. And that's what this is. This is a homily. This is, you know, 
And you know this, and I love how Hodel here is keeping us. Com- he's completely got the text wrapped around. You, you can't go anywhere in his sermon without that text, you know, being right there in the center, and Christ being in the center of that text. And I love how he's pulling in all these other passages. This, you know, this, uh, you know. So there, you've got, you know, the weeds and the wheat, the sheep and the goats, the Pharisee and the publican. You, you got all these things together, and then at the end, you got the separation. So, um, so far, so good. We continue. Saint and sinner that I am, the sorting always takes place at the end of all things, not somewhere in the middle. That means that now, as we speak, believers and unbelievers are all grazing together. We all get treated alike, don't we? Believers get the same rain and sunshine as unbelievers do. They get the same colds and flus and clogged arteries and cancers. They have the same business problems and problems with the recession and car problems and house problems. They both die. Okay, this is completely antithetical to the uh, to the thinking of the prosperity gospel and Joel Osteen's best life now. Okay, so if, if you think Christianity is some kind of a means by which you can avoid bad health, avoid uh, poor wealth or po- poverty problems... Uh, you ain't, you don't understand what Christianity is. I mean, here, Pastor Hodel's basically saying that all of us, saint and sinner alike, what, we have clogged arteries, we die, we have poor health, we experience, and isn't that the truth? Okay, there's no biblical principles or no amount of uh, mantra, you know, uh, uh, reciting some kind of a mantra or, or finding the, the hidden principles where if you apply these things, God has to give you health and wealth and all that kind of stuff. No. You're dying, whether you like it or not. <laughs> it, it always uh, here in South Orange County, in California, it's it's quite a spectacle. One of the things that's a, that's different here than other parts of the country, and I've I've traveled all, all across the country and you know on business, and so I I've, I've seen many of the different pockets and cultures you know throughout the country you know from the South to Midwest to the East Coast, and, and really seen a lot of the difference. One of the things that's it's particularly unique to Southern California is that we we have, especially here where we are, we have like a pocket of very wealthy uh, yuppie types. So these are people who are probably not on the high end of the uh, of of the economic scale. They're really kind of at the low end of the high part of the economic scale. And so these are people who the, the, the husband drives a Mercedes-Benz, the wife drives a BMW. And um, over and again, it just amazes me, the women here in South Orange County, how much money they invest – in um in body improvements, <laughs> uh, modifying things that are sagging and heading south, and you know, and things you know and stuff like that amazes me. You know, and um, yesterday we went to uh, my my daughter's uh, uh, middle school uh, choir sang at the uh, Christmas tree lighting for the Ritz Carlton. I kid you not. We walked onto the property there. Their hi- their fire hydrants are painted gold. I took a picture of one just because I was just absolutely disgusted. A fire hydrant. These are things that dogs urinate on, and theirs are painted gold. I'm sure there are no dogs that come sniffing around the Ritz Carlton thing. But anyway, we were walking as we were leaving the event after her little group was done. I I kid you not. We we witnessed a, a woman with that looked like she was a walking Barbie doll. But of course, it didn't look like anything was real on her. She was just as plastic as as a Barbie doll, and and I looked at that, and it was just it was sad in a lot of ways. 
You know, here you think you're cheating death or somehow cheating time, you know, going these routes. But in reality, you're not, and you're not really fooling anybody. You know, it it really looks ridiculous. So, but we all, sinner and saint alike, we're dying. We're dying. Judgment day is coming. And they both rise in the resurrection at the last day. But that's where the similarities end and the differences begin. The righteous rise to eternal life. Unbelievers rise to eternal condemnation. And the dividing line between them isn't works. Get that? The dividing line between saint and sinner, the righteous and the unrighteous on Judgment Day, is not works. Now, what's funny is that if you were to ask me a couple of days ago what I thought it was, I would have said faith. Hodel pushes it even farther than that. Wait till you hear his answer to this one. What's the dividing line, Pastor Hodel? It's Jesus. I said we will be, our, our works will be judged, but we will not be judged by our works. It's very easy to skip over the separation of the sheep and the goats that come in verse 32 and go on very quickly to the end part of the parable where, and try to figure out what it is about the sheep's good behavior that causes Jesus to save them and what it is about the dirty old goats that causes Jesus to send them off to the left. But you can't do that. There's nothing that belongs inherently to the sheep that gets God to smile on them. What, God doesn't smile when you be you? That's a famous quote from Rick Warren. We continue. You can't read this parable apart from everything else that Jesus has been saying all along. Everything that Jesus has been saying to us has been pointing out that the centrality of faith is the criterion for the separation. Now notice, he's talking about the centrality of faith as the criteria for the separation. But by saying that Christ is the dividing line, Pastor Hodel is really pointing to the fact that all faith has an object. And true Christian faith has as its object Jesus Christ. And so faith isn't the real dividing line, Christ is. And it's that faith in Christ, that trust in Christ, that is the real dividing line of whether or not you are a sheep or a goat. In other words, faith in Jesus is the central issue. Jesus spent his whole preaching ministry pointing out that goodness and badness have nothing to do with our salvation. The prodigal son, for instance, isn't portrayed as cleaning up his life, only as receiving his father's inheritance or acceptance. The laborers who labored at the ninth or the, the, the eleventh hour in the vineyard aren't shown as having done some extra special work on the side in order to earn their payment, but only to trust the vintner who promised that he would take care of them, just as he said. Now, see what he's doing here? He's pulling in all of these other parables, all of these other passages to show that this is not just some isolated teaching, but that all along, this is what Scripture has been teaching. This is the central message of what Christ has been teaching. This is really, really good stuff at this point. And it takes our eyes off of our 
works as if that somehow saves us and puts them where they belong on Christ. And you can say, oh, wow, it's there in that parable. There it is in that passage. And oh, there it is. Wow. Great, great stuff. We're going to take a quick break. And uh, when we get back from the break, um, we will continue with our sermon here. And so if, uh, if you would like to email me, you can at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. We will be right back. your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Python's Flying Circus Church. <laughs> Thank you, Phil. Hello and welcome back to the Evening News. Our top story this evening comes from the little town of Plano, Texas. Pastor Martin Spurgeon of Christ Redeems Church has issued a challenge to his congregation to read their Bibles for 30 days in a row. Naturally, we here at the number one relevant news network wanted to investigate and find out how people are reacting to Pastor Spurgeon's idea. Our top reporter, Mickey Dunwood, asked everyday people on the street what they thought, and this is what they said. Is that kind of like the 30-day sex challenge? Because I like that one so much better because it was cardio and it was good and I lost weight and I totally burned off the calories of the stick of gum that I had for lunch today. That was so much easier than reading because reading hurts my head. I would much rather do the sex challenge, if you know what I mean. <laughs> the Bible is so out of date and irrelevant. I don't see how I can possibly find my purpose in life. I've got Rick Warren's book. That's all I need. He wants me to what? No, I don't think I'll do that. I can't read. Doesn't he know that his church will just shrink like a frightened turtle? I want my base life now, and this doesn't fit into that category. Yeah, you know what? I would like to see him try that himself. Wanting more reactions to this provocative challenge, we went to Stephen Furtick and asked him what he felt about Pastor Spurgeon's challenge. Did you show up to file a little bit more religious information in your already overloaded hard drive so that you could do absolutely nothing about it? The church is full of pot-bellied Christians waiting to shove their spiritual 
food down their mouth one more time, but they don't intend to do anything to bless anybody. You are a Pharisee. You sit on the front row. You might even take notes, but you take notes so you can argue with them with your roommate after church and how I don't really believe in all that. Yeah, but if we ever start turning in this front row Pharisee crowd, I don't think the teaching's deep enough. I would like a little more hermeneutical explanation on the original languages in the Aramaic and the Hebrew. Jesus says, shut up. Help somebody, bless somebody, heal somebody, serve somebody, pray for somebody. Why don't you do something? Why don't you bring a lost friend to church with you next week? Watch Jesus change their life. And then you won't be worried about how loud the music was. You'll just hope that they meet Jesus. So there you have it, folks. Esther Spurgeon has issued the challenge, and it seems that people are simply not enthusiastic. Well, that's all the news for this evening. Catch us tomorrow night when we discuss the Emergent Church's new translation of the New Testament. Hi, I'm Patrick Kyle, a founding partner of New Reformation Press. Just as the first Reformation rediscovered, reclaimed, and restated timeless truths from the Word of God, the mission of New Reformation Press is to reintroduce these truths to the contemporary church and culture. All of our resources are hand-picked to ensure that you have the best available biblical and doctrinal materials at your fingertips to help you grasp the treasures of the Reformation and deepen your own understanding of Christ and His work on your behalf. Browse our website at newreformationpress.com. We offer books, CDs, downloadable MP3s, and our very own line of Reformation-themed clothing. Check out the audio presentation, Bible in an Hour. Absolutely the finest overview of the scriptures that the staff at New Reformation Press has ever heard. Also, Dr. Rod Rosenblatt's presentation, The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church. A stunning 200-proof presentation of the gospel for those who have been hurt by the church and discouraged as a result of false teaching. Available exclusively through NewReformationPress.com. Again, that's NewReformationPress.com. All right, we're back. Yeah, in case you missed it, that was a brand new Marty Python Circus Church. The 30-Day Bible Reading Challenge. Hard to satirize things in uh, evangelical Christianity here in America. But uh, we strive to do that nonetheless. All right. I just want to remind (laughs) you all, uh, this week is a, obviously, it's kind of a short week. We are going to be, uh, well, we got Thanksgiving right in the middle of everything. And so... Uh, of course, you know, I talked with the guys over at Issues, etc. They're like broadcasting all week. <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> you guys are doing what? And so, you know, apparently, you know, these are the Todd and Jeff are like way overachievers. They, so they've set the bar so high that we're going to have to make sure that uh, that uh, we uh, we respond in kind, you know, so. Uh, just so you know that uh, issues uh, that fighting for the faith will definitely be uh, broadcasting all week long, even if that means on Thanksgiving. If we uh, if if I put up a Sunday school lesson or something uh, that doesn't mean I'm necessarily live, because you know by the time my program rolls around, um, you know we'll be right in the middle of eating turkey. So, but if you want to listen, if you are looking forward to getting new programming this week, well, you've got it. We've we are going to definitely be yeah, issues, etc. Is going to be new all every day this week. So we're fighting for the faith, just because those guys have set such a high, 
a high standard that uh, we we've, we can't let those guys surpass us. So just also a reminder, Pirate Christian Radio is a listener-supported radio network. If you would like to support the Ministry of Fighting for the Faith, the way you do it is by supporting the Ministry of Pirate Christian Radio. And uh, your financial support is needed for the continuation and expansion of this important radio ministry. So our mailing address, if you would like to uh, send your gifts and, uh, and support us, you can do so by sending it to Pirate Christian Radio, Post Office Box 791, SJC California 92. Six nine three. All right. Well, we're in the middle of a sermon review here, and um, due to the fact that we've received so many requests for good sermons, we're in the middle of a we're in the middle of a good sermon here from uh, Pastor Ron Hodel uh, from uh, Faith Lutheran Church in Capistrano Beach, California, and this is a sermon on Judgment Day. And so uh, we're partway through this sermon, and we're working our way through it. And it, his text is the, is uh, from Matthew twenty five regarding the sheep and the goats. And uh, I think we'll just dive right back into the sermon. Here we go. ...who promised that he would take care of them, just as he said. The publican isn't sent home justified because he promised to lead a better life, but only because he had faith to confess that he was sinful and unclean and didn't deserve a blessed thing and could only trust in a God who would be merciful to him. I bring that up because Jesus, you see, is not having second thoughts about everything that he's told us. He's not changing his mind about how we are saved. The reason, the reason judgment falls on the goats is because they don't trust the king's proclamation that the blood of Jesus has covered them. They are judged not because Jesus didn't die for them and not because they did bad things, but because they won't believe Jesus died for them. See, now this is important. This is really important. You talk to a lot of people, their first inclination is to take this passage and say, well, see, they were judged by what they did and what they didn't do. No, they were first separated. The separation has to do with faith. Only Christ can take somebody and convert them from a goat into a sheep, and he does that through the proclamation and the preaching of the gospel. We continue. And that's it, period. It has nothing to do with their behavior. The judgment on the last day isn't based on what you have done or left undone, but on who you are by faith and what God has declared you to be. Those who in the end trust nothing but Jesus' blood and righteousness to be their glorious dress are declared to be sheep. And the sheep on the right hand hear nothing but blessing. Come, thou blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. couple things here. Think about the words. The sheep receive a gift that has been in the works since the beginning of the world. God has been at work preparing the gift of salvation for them even before they were born. And it is an inheritance that they receive, not wages for their work. Okay, got to stop there. Okay, this is key. Notice that Jesus refers to uh, salvation 
as an inheritance. Over and over and over again, you see in Scripture inheritance talk. This is not by accident. And um, inheritance is something that you receive as a gift. Wages are something that you receive as uh, that you earn. And this is an important biblical distinction. If you talk about wages, when we talk about wages, we, we get the wages of sin is death. The way, <laughs> if you want wages, uh, hell and death are the things that await you. Um, eternal life and salvation are an inheritance. And this is an important distinction that he's uh, bringing out here. Important that we as Christians keep these things separated in our minds. If you think you're earning your salvation in full or in part by your good works, then what you've done is you've turned salvation into a wage, a wage in full or a wage in part. And that is not how we're saved. We're saved by grace through faith. It's a gift. It's an inheritance. What's an inheritance? It's a gift based on... Not on what you've done, but on the good graces of the one giving out the gift. Amen. Think about that word inheritance. Some people, before they have children, set aside money in a trust fund so that when their child reaches a certain age, they will have that money as their own. So when the time comes... For the trust fund to become theirs, the parents can say, son, daughter, come here. We've set this aside for you from before you were born. And now we want it to be yours. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Elect before the foundations of the earth. Notice how he's playing that. Just it, this illustration just digs deep into that. It's beautiful. And what's the child say to this? Thanks, mom and dad. I worked hard for the inheritance that you have set aside for me. Of course not. The child can no more say he's earned that money than we can say we've earned eternal life. Eternal life was set aside for us before we were born, before we existed from the foundation of the world. You can always reject it and say, no thanks. But whether you reject it or not, it does have your name on the tag. That's the Bible's doctrine of election. God has been working for your salvation since the foundation of the world. Why did God make a promise to Adam and Eve in the garden? I'll tell you why. Oh, this is oh, this is one of the best parts of the sermon. I just I'm excited to play this part. Oh man, for you and for your salvation. Why did He call Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob so He could save you? Why did he guide Israel out of Egypt through the wilderness and into the promised land? So he could save you. Why did he cause his son to be born of the Virgin Mary, to suffer, to die, and to rise again? Answer? To save you. Just brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. When you... This completely puts a different take on all of the stories we read in the in the Old Testament scriptures, in all of the scriptures, Christ is now the center. Why did he do these things? To save us. Oh, 
Not, and, and notice he doesn't just say save us. He says save you. Why does he say that? This is this is one of the tactics I've I've seen that good preachers use is that they'll they'll really personify it to save you, to save you. Why? Because true saving faith is not the faith that just merely assents to historical facts. Yeah, Jesus died on the cross for to, you know for, you know for people's sins. Uh-uh. True saving faith says Christ died for me. So here, Hodel is, is, is taking all of these all of these Old Testament stories. Why did God cause that to happen? Why did He do that? Why? Because He was saving you. That's powerful. <laughs> That's Christ-centered too. Because what are you doing? You're just vicariously receiving it. Were you there when He did these things? No, not at all. These things were done for you by God, for your salvation. Good, good, good news. Why did God have someone bring you to his word? And why did he wash you in the faith-giving waters of holy baptism and feed you with himself in the supper? To save you. To save you. God has worked everything out so that Christ could hand you the kingdom on the last day and say, Here, it's all yours. Your Father and I, together with the Holy Spirit, have been working on this for a long time. It's God who is the pure giver, and we, the pure receivers. Lutherans look at being elected not on the basis of what we've done, and we don't try to figure out if we're among the saved by how well things are going for us in this life. The faithful... That's you. Look to the promises that he sticks into your ears. It's God's will that all be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, who is Jesus. He promises to save those who trust the one who justifies the ungodly. So I've got to be in because it's what he wants for me and because he's promised and he is faithful. Our works will be judged. But we will not be judged by our works, only by faith in Christ. So far, so far, I've talked only about not being judged by our works. But our works will be judged. So on to the works. It's not only some sort of spiritualized us that God declares righteous. He declares righteous our works as well. Everything about us, everything we are and everything we do is declared righteous by faith in Jesus. That's what makes our works acceptable in God's sight. Right. It's our works are made acceptable in God's sight because of Jesus. Folks, I cannot tell you. It is so exciting to me to hear this gospel good news because every time I hear it, it just sounds too good to be true, but it's not. This is actually the good news. This is the gospel good news. You are saved by grace through faith, and you're saved to do good works. How could you not do these things? And and God is delighted and excited and happy with what you do for the sake of Christ. That's the kicker. 
If you think about it, there are plenty of unbelievers who do good, who feed the hungry, who give drink to the thirsty, who welcome the stranger, who clothe the naked, who visit the sick, who go to those who are in prison. Some do that better than Christians do it. So what's the difference? That's right. Some do it better than Christians do it. Don't ever forget that. If you think that uh, that humanitarian efforts is reserved only for Christians, you're wrong. There's plenty of non-Christians who do so. The difference is that Jesus not only justifies us, he justifies our works as well, which are really no better than filthy rags, and he receives them back to himself as wonderful gift. In fact, Jesus says he's hidden himself behind the mask of the lost and the lowest and the the. the least of these my brothers. The one who fasted for us in the wilderness is hidden in the hungry. The one who cried out, I thirst, is hidden in the thirsty. The one who came despised is hidden in the stranger. The one who became sick unto death with our sin is hidden behind the sick. The one who became a prisoner under the law in our place is hidden in the one who is in prison. And the sheep are absolutely amazed. Yeah, we've got, man, there's so much going on there. You know, there's a passage of scripture that talks about you know, really this kind of hospitality that the, there are those who unknowingly have uh, taken care of angels by inviting strangers into their homes. But folks, it's, this passage reveals that it's far more than that. When Jesus says that when you've done these things, you've, you know, to the least of these, you've done it for me. Folks, when you visit a prisoner in prison, you're visiting Jesus in a very real way. When you feed the hungry, you are feeding Christ himself. He is hidden behind the mask of that hungry person when you take care of the sick you're taking care of christ in a very real way because what does christ say when you've done it to the least of these you've done it to me forget about forget about hosting angels by accident by being kind enough to invite a stranger into your house jesus is there in the homeless jesus is there in the sick he's there in prison and when you know that <laughs> this makes our good works take on a completely different dimension. They had no idea that they were doing those things for the Lord. When did we when did we do that? When did we see you hungry, thirsty, sick, naked or in prison? They didn't see Christ when they did these things. They only saw some poor beggar picking through garbage, looking for food, and gave him a buck. They only saw a lonely foreigner in need of a welcome, a person in need of clothing, someone sick or in prison who needed company. Doing things to gain reward was the last thing on their minds. Right, the last thing on your minds. And that's the difference. When you're doing your good works because you think that by them you have, you're earning God's merit and favor... You're keeping score, trying to tally up your wage ahead of time. 
your good works can't save you. But when you have true saving faith, it's a different game altogether. Good works are done for a completely different reason, if you would. They were only doing what needed to be done. They had long given up the idea that God was still into bookkeeping, and so they didn't bother keeping track. They didn't even know what to keep track of. And that's how faith in Christ works. It does what needs doing even before the law tells you what to do. Faith just does. Yes. It's like an apple tree producing apples. That's just what apple trees do. Faith gives food to the hungry, drink to the thirsty, clothing to the naked, welcome to the stranger, company to the sick and imprisoned, all without being told to and without even thinking about it. That's partly why I don't like to preach stewardship sermons. Faith just knows it needs doing even before it's asked. That's how faith in Christ serves Christ. Luther, Luther wrote these words. If anyone earnestly believed that he is receiving the Lord himself when he receives a, pure, a poor brother, there would be no need for anxious, zealous, solicitous exhortations to do works of love. Our coffers, our storeroom, and compassion would be open at once for the benefit of the brethren. There would be no ill will. And together with godly Abraham, we would run to meet the wretched people, invite them into our homes, seize upon this honor, and say to them, Lord Jesus, come to me. Enjoy my bread, wine, silver, and gold. How well it is invested by me when I invest it in you. This is just revolutionary. Oh, man. Oh, I, I, wow. That's all I can say is wow. And even that doesn't even add good commentary because how can you add to this? That's like saying I can add to the perfect righteousness of Christ. Oh. On the other hand. Whoops, here comes a, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> we, we switching gears here from sheep to goats. On the left hand, there are the goats. Their situation is opposite the sheep. They are cursed instead of blessed. Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. But notice two things. First, Jesus doesn't call them cursed by my Father. If anything, they cursed themselves for rejecting the relationship Jesus had with them all along. And second... Hell wasn't prepared for them, but rather for the devil and his angels. God doesn't want anyone to go to hell. He sent Jesus to die for everyone. If anyone winds up there, it's entirely against God's desire to save the world through the death and resurrection of Jesus. But the thing is, the goats don't want anything to do with salvation through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so they get what they want. 
They get to be outside of the realm of His graces forever. The parable provokes a question. Are you a sheep or are you a goat? Are you on the right or are you on the left? And the answer is yes. Our sin and the law tell us that we are undeniably goats by nature. Mm. We've neglected the hungry, the sick, and on and so forth. And what we have done has not been nearly enough, for none of us has been perfect like our Father in Heaven is perfect. Ouch, ouch, ouch. And watch, he's preaching the law here and nailing you to the wall with it. When we look at God's law, we know we are not nearly good enough. Not even close. So he's using the law to show us our sin and our need for a Savior. Let's see where he takes us from there. But there's something else as well. An alien righteousness comes to us from outside of us. Alien meaning outside the world. Christ's righteousness comes to us. God declares us to be righteous for Christ's sake. And baptism and the gospel tell us that we are sheep for the good of the good shepherd's flock. We've been marked with the sign of the cross, the seal of him who died. And through his word, God raises up sheep who trust in Jesus and not in themselves. We're goats by nature whom God has declared to be sheep for Christ's sake. By law, we know ourselves to be goats with Christ as our judge and that should deeply concern us. But by the gospel, we see ourselves as God sees us through Christ, as sheep with Jesus as our shepherd king. And that should drive us to our knees in thanksgiving. You're not judged by what you do, but by who you are. You don't do good works to inherit God's kingdom. You do them because God's kingdom is already yours through faith in Christ. You don't feed the hungry or give drink to the thirsty or, or welcome the stranger in order to be sheep at his right hand. You do those things because you are sheep at his right hand. Amen. And there's a wonderful promise. As you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. So our works are judged, judged righteous for Christ's sake. But we aren't judged by our works, but by faith in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. Oh. <laughs> How can I not share that with you all? Man, I, I'm telling you, it just amazes me that we do not have a congregation literally teeming with tens of thousands of people coming to be fed God's word and hear this gospel message. Uh, instead, we've got this tiny little congregation in an obscure little neighborhood. And I guess Christ is pleased to have it that way. But I'm very happy to share that type of a sermon with you all.
All right, we're going to take our second break. If you would like to email me, you can. You can email me at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. And when we come back, we're going to be listening to a TED Talk. We're going to hear something that's like the polar opposite of what you just heard. So um, stay tuned. We'll be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, pansy, turning photo written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. My local Christian bookstore just sells Jesus schlock. Where can I find good material? We at NewReformationPress.com are committed to providing a hand-picked selection of books and teaching materials that educate, inform, and entertain while uniquely maintaining a relentless focus on the gospel. We believe that these forgotten doctrines and their scriptural emphases can not only enrich individual Christians and revive the church, but also address the deepest needs of our culture. Discover our growing library of resources by Dr. Rod Rosenblatt of the White Horse Inn radio program, including his powerful address, The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church, available exclusively at NewReformationPress.com, or the big-picture audio presentation Bible in an Hour by Pastor Wade Butler. Learn the center and scope of redemptive history and scripture in just one hour. And of course, be sure not to miss our selection of t-shirts, gifts, and artwork as well. NewReformationPress.com. Finally, Reformation Theology made accessible. I tell you, good preaching, Christ-centered, nothing like it, nothing better. I've received a few emails from people who basically have told me that in listening to my program that they've become frustrated with their own pastors. One guy wrote me and asked the question, is it too much to ask to have the gospel preached by my pastor? And he even uh, took the opportunity to take his pastor out and express his concerns, and still things haven't really gotten any better. Uh, I should probably put a warning at the front end of the program. If you listen to Fighting for the Faith and you hear these uh, critiques of bad sermons and actually hear good sermons for yourself, you might have a crisis of conscience. You may not uh, find yourself uh, necessarily... 
thinking that uh, you should stay put in your church. And folks, if you're not being fed God's word, if you're not being given the gospel, if you're not given Christ and him crucified for your sins Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, I'm going to basically put it this way. You are being ripped off. You're being sold a bill of goods and you're not being fed properly as a sheep. And some of you are saying, man, it's frustrating me. What should I do? Literally, if if you're not being given the gospel, you're not being given Christ, and you are finding that your pastor is not teaching God's word, you might want to have a conversation with him. And if that doesn't turn things around, it might be time for you to find a different church. And here's the deal. I'll tell you this. I don't care if it's a, you know, there's bad churches within the Missouri Synod, too. Not attending a Missouri Synod church doesn't necessarily guarantee that you're going to have a good one. Find a pastor who preaches Christ and him crucified for your sins Sunday after Sunday, that the problem of humanity is is humanity's sinful rebellion against God and the only solution is Jesus Christ. I'll tell you this, I find it very, you know, the, the best out there are good Missouri Synod churches. Well, I'll say the good Lutheran churches. And the, the worst out there are bad Lutheran churches. So, <clears throat> equal opportunity discriminator there. So, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, we're going to continue on. We're going to switch gears here. Um, let me read something from you from McLaren's book, latest book called Finding Our Way. This is McLaren's latest uh, work where he's talking about kind of recapturing these ancient practices of the, of, of the early, of medieval traditions. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about uh, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism having common ground. Uh, let me read. This is from McLaren's book, uh, pages 22 and 23 in Finding Our Way. He says, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism have more in common than many people realize because they all share a primal narrative. And they all flow from a common sacred fountainhead, a single figure at once famous and mysterious, a Middle Eastern man named Abraham of Ur. So apparently, we, we Christianity and Islam and Judaism all have Abraham in common. Well, it, it, the only way that we would really have Abraham in common is if uh, we all properly understood what, you know, really understood Abraham's life and how it points to Christ and him crucified. And that Abraham is one man among many who are in the line of Christ and that he was praised for his faith and trust in the promises of God. Or as Genesis 14 says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. But that's not what uh, McLaren is referring to. Uh, It gets worse. Here's what McLaren says. He says, we can date Abraham's birth to about 2000 B.C. in modern day Iraq near present day Nasarif. Like Moses, Jesus and Muhammad and like us, Abraham was raised in a pluralistic polytheistic world during his lifetime. He lived side by side with others who honored many different gods and practiced many different religions. This is borne out in Scripture. This is true. And during his lifetime, Abraham, like Moses, like Jesus, and Muhammad, had an encounter with God that distinguished him from from his contemporaries and propelled him into a mission, introducing a new way of life that changed the world. Let me read that again. Apparently, Brian McLaren thinks that Muhammad had an encounter with God. And during his lifetime, Abraham, like Moses, Jesus, and Muhammad, had an encounter with God. 
that distinguished him from his contemporaries and propelled him into a mission introducing a new way of life that changed the world. McLaren shows that he doesn't understand what faith is. And not only that, by saying that Muhammad had an encounter with God shows the fact that a, that McLaren doesn't understand hokum about the nature of God and how God works. If, if Muhammad had a, an encounter with God the same way Abraham and Jesus did, then that means that Islam is just another valid um, Abrahamic-based religion. But Islam denies Christ's deity. Islam denies his vicarious death for our sins on the cross. How can Muhammad have had an encounter with the one true God if the religion that God had him found directly contradicts the teachings of Christ Jesus himself and denies who Jesus himself claimed to be? It's just not possible. So we've got a problem with uh, McLaren. Of course, this is just one of many problems that we have with McLaren. So uh, working forward from there, that's kind of a little bit of uh, just to get your mental juices uh, flowing. There's a gal by the name of Karen Armstrong, and she did a TED Talk. TED Talks are basically uh, these high-profile 20-minute speeches they, they they fly they fly in some of the best thinkers in the whole world to you know once a year to do a TED talk, and uh, and you know up to Silicon Valley and and uh, last year in two thousand actually this year two thousand eight TED Prize uh, she won the TED the prize there the TED talk for her Charter for Compassion, and this is the gal who started the Charter for Compassion. I want you to listen to what she says is at the at the heart of all of the different religions and what she thinks is going wrong. And uh, we'll critique her accordingly. But keep in mind, by critiquing her, we've automatically become dogmatic, narrow-minded, uh, fundamentalist. And uh, if you if you don't buy into what you say and you critique it, then you're really the problem in the world. So keep that in mind. But we now will go. Here's Karen Armstrong from a 2008 TED Talk. Dramatic music. love getting that in there. Well, this is such an honor, and it's wonderful to uh, be in the presence of uh, an organization that is really making a difference in the world, and I'm intensely grateful uh, for the opportunity to speak to you today. And I'm also rather surprised, uh, because when I look back on my life, the last thing I ever wanted to do was to write or, uh, or be in any way involved about re religion. After I left my convent, I'd finished with religion, frankly. I thought that was it. And for 13 years, I kept clear of it. I wanted to be an English literature professor. And uh, I certainly didn't even want to be a writer, particularly. But then I suffered a series of career catastrophes, one after the other. Um, and finally found myself in television. Uh, um, I said that to Bill Moyers, and he said, oh, we take anybody. Um, 
And I was doing uh, some rather controversial religious programs. Uh, this went down very well in the UK, uh, where religion is extremely unpopular. And so for once, the one, only time in my life, I was finally in the mainstream. Um, but now, this is interesting. Now, she's talking about, you know, she, she doesn't want to have anything to do with religion. Well, she spent her early life as a nun, okay, in the Society of the Holy Child Jesus, a teaching order. Uh, she'd, so she's, she's done the whole uber-legalistic, save-yourself-by-your-good-works kind of Christianity as a nun, and she's rejected it, and is not very. She doesn't want to have anything to do with religion. And now she's just saying that she's, you know, in in England, she's find, finding herself in the mainstream because why religion is extremely unpopular. Okay, in one sense, I can relate with her. I've been down the legalism road, and believe me, I'm no friend of legalism at all. Can't stand it. Okay, been there, done that. And if I ever have to be put into that straitjacket again, I just assume take my life. Um, but he, here she is. She's angry. Something, something bitter. She just doesn't want to have anything to do with it. But watch what she's going to do here. She's, she's now talking about religion, writing about religion. And how has she come to grips with all of the things that happened to her? Well, she's not going to center it in on Christ and the good news of his death and resurrection for our sins. Um, instead, she's retool, she's going to retool everything in light of a different central passage, not the central centrality of Christ, but the centrality of something else, which is really interesting because it smacks of the same thing that enslaved her in the first place in the convents. I got sent to Jerusalem to make um, a, a film about early Christianity. And there, for the first time, I encountered the other religious traditions, Judaism and Islam, uh, the sister religions of Christianity. And Sister religions of Christianity? Islam is the sister religion of Christianity? I guess Mormonism would be the sister religion of Christianity too, right? Yeah, I, I, I don't think that's how that works. But it's interesting. Like McLaren, she puts everybody into the same you know, kind of bucket. You know, interesting. Well, I found I knew nothing about these faiths at all, despite my own intensely uh, religious background. Um, I'd seen Judaism only as a kind of prelude to Christianity, and I knew nothing about Islam at all. But in the, that city, that tortured city, where you see the uh, three faiths jostling so uneasily together, you also become aware of the profound connection between them. And... Uh, it has been the study of other religious traditions that brought me back to a sense of what religion can be and actually enabled me to look at my own faith in a different light. And I found some astonishing things in the course of my study that had never occurred to me. Frankly, uh, in the days that when I give thought I'd had it with religion, I just found the whole thing absolutely incredible. Um, these doctrines seemed unproven, abstract, um, and uh, to my astonishment, when I began seriously studying other traditions, I began to realize that uh, belief, which we make such a fuss about today, is only a very recent uh, religious enthusiasm. Okay, catch what she's saying here. She's basically saying belief is a recent comer on the scene, Okay. This is very interesting. This is actually historically inaccurate. 
highly inaccurate. Okay, One need only spend some time reading, for instance, the writings of the early church fathers, especially Augustine and Irenaeus uh, writing against heretics. Okay, uh, read read uh, uh, read Athanasius. Okay, on the incarnation, and uh, it, this it'll it only it only takes a minute to completely disprove it. But not only that, the scriptures themselves disprove what she's saying. But watch what she's going to do here. It surfaced only in the West uh, in about the 17th century. The word belief itself originally meant to love. No, not true. The Greek word for belief is trust. It's not love, it's trust. Okay? And this is this is a this is a sleight of hand here semantically that she's that she's committing here. Okay? The Greek word for belief is trust. It's not love. Believe and love are two different concepts. They're closely connected, but they're not the same. To prize, to hold dear. In the 17th century, it narrowed its focus for reasons that I'm exploring in a book I'm writing at the moment um, to include, to to mean an intellectual assent to a set of propositions. Uh, Credo. I believe. It did not mean I accept certain uh, creedal articles of faith. It meant I commit myself, I engage myself. Um, Wow rewrite this is a postmodern rewrite by the way she's attacking this as a postmodern you know it you know this idea of belief and and propositional truth claims eh, nah, 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 nah. she's attacking a modernity if you would and the stuff she's saying is not historically accurate uh, indeed some of the world traditions uh, think very little of religious orthodoxy in the quran uh, religious opinion religious orthodoxy is dismissed as zanna self-indulgent guesswork about matters that nobody can be certain of one way or the other, but which makes people quarrelsome and stupidly sectarian. <laughs> so if, if religion is not about believing things, what is it about? I, what I've found across the board is that religion is about behaving differently. There it is, folks. This, if religion is about behaving differently, that's what McLaren basically said in that quote that I read to you. That supposedly uh, Jesus and Muhammad and Abraham all had encounters with God that propelled them into a mission of introducing a way of life, a behavior. There are two religions in the whole world, only two. One that focuses you on Christ and the promises of salvation through him by trust and belief in him. For, you know, for you, or the other that has to do with a, with your works, the things you do, a change of behavior, a change of uh, a different lifestyle, finding your purpose, whatever you want to name it, okay? But it's religion versus it's 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 works versus grace. Uh, yeah, that's right. Rick Warren says his biggest job as a pastor is to uh, is be, is to change people's behavior. You know, he said that in an interview with uh, World Net Daily. John just brought that up. So, um, yeah, you're right. Sad, but true. So, here we go. We've, you know, this is a perfect example of man-made human wisdom. Religion is about change of behavior. It's about a different way of life. No, No, true religion is trust and belief in Christ for your sins. We continue. 
Instead of deciding whether or not you believe in God, first you do something, you behave in a committed way, and then you begin to understand uh, the truths of religion. Um, and you behave in a committed way, and then you understand the truths of religion. Completely backwards. Okay, Christianity says that when you trust and have faith in Christ, that you do that 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 belief that that trust shows its fruit in good works. This is the exact opposite formula. And folks, believe me when I tell you that Karen Armstrong is at the vanguard of those who are trying to undo dogmatic, fundamentalist, Jesus is the only way Christianity. That's she, this woman, this is this, her mission in life. And religious doctrines are meant to be summons to action. You only understand them when you put them into practice. Now, pride of place uh, um, in this practice is given to compassion. And it is an arresting fact that right across the board, in every single one of the major world faiths, compassion, the ability to feel with the other, in the way we've been thinking about this evening. Okay, so she's defining compassion as feeling with the other. And somehow you're not capable of doing that if you are into belief. Somehow you're not capable of doing that if you're dogmatic, if you're fundamentalist, and if you believe that Jesus is the only way. It's impossible for you to feel with the other is the not only the test of any true religiosity it is also what the, whoa compassion is the true t is the t is the test for any true religiosity hear what she just said well, i got to back this up a second here this uh, wow uh, just going to go wow <laughs> oh man evening is the not only the test of any true religiosity it is also what will bring us into the presence of what Jews, Christians, and Muslims call God or the divine. Wow. So compassion is the test of any true religiosity, and it will bring you into the presence of whatever religion they call the, you know, calls the divine. Is this what Scripture teaches? I don't think so. John, you're being narrow-minded. You must be a fundamentalist. Oh, well. Where's your compassion? <laughs> See, if this is the test, if this is the test, then tr it doesn't matter what truth claims are ascribed to a particular religion. Doctrine doesn't matter. Whether or not Jesus actually rose from the dead, whether or not Jesus walked on the Sea of Galilee, whether or not Moses actually you know, cross the Red Sea on dry ground, you know, with the children of Israel, Israel whether or not the, the flood really took place or whether or not there was really a Garden of Eden, a snake and, uh, and, and, and some forbidden fruit really is irrelevant. As long as the stories or the mythologies evoke compassion for others, which is feeling for the other, or, you, know, you know, feeling with the other, then that's the test of true religiosity. So all religions can be true if, if they are, their end fruit is compassion. Got it? That's what this woman is saying. Uh, it is compassion, says the Buddha, which uh, brings you to nirvana. 
Why? Because in compassion, when we feel with the other, we dethrone ourselves from the center of our world. And Actually, no, that's not true. If the reason why I'm having compassion on somebody else is because I, if I believe by doing so, God owes me something, I've actually stayed on the throne. I'm on my little throne. God's on his big throne. I, I do things compassionately and reach out to the poor and stuff like that because I know that God is watching. And by doing such things, I know he owes me a wage for doing it. So at the end, I could tally up the accounting, open up the books and say, hey, God, you owe me. Who's, am I really dethroned at that point? Hmm. We put another person there. Um, and uh, once we get rid of ego, then we're ready to see the divine. And in particular, every single one. Of- Isn't that what uh, Ed Bacon said to Oprah? Once we get rid of ego, we can see the divine. See the common thread running through all of these false religions. And these false ideas. And the question I have for you is, even though this sounds spiritual, this sounds high and mighty, this sounds compassionate. Who's your authority? Who's your source? Who are you going to believe? Are you going to believe the wisdom of Karen Armstrong and in her enlightened way how she's synthesizing all these different religions? Or, as the reformers say, sola scriptura. God's word alone has authority. And if God's word alone has authority, then when somebody contradicts God's word, it doesn't matter how well-meaning, it doesn't matter how compassionate, it doesn't matter if their motives are in the right place and they're really moving from a sincere heart, it means they're sincerely wrong because they're contradicting the scripture. And this is the hard line, the unpopular line that Christians nowadays don't seem to be all too willing to, to draw and to stand on. Yet that's the line we've got to take. Scripture alone, not Karen, not the Buddha. The major world traditions has highlighted and has said at the, put at the core of their tradition what's become known as the golden rule. First propounded by Confucius five centuries before Christ. Do not do to others what you would not like them to do to you. That, he said, was the central thread which ran through all his teaching and that his disciples should put into practice all day and every day. And it was uh, the golden rule would bring them to the transcendent value that he called ren, human heartedness, which was a transcendent experience in itself. So there we are. The center of all true religion is the golden rule. Mm-hmm. doesn't matter what exit you get off on the freeway. No. Nope. It sounds like you're going to get to your destination. Absolutely. There are many, there are many paths that lead to the mount of, uh, top of Mount Fuji, apparently. Isn't you, can, you know, golden rule. So this is her claim that at the heart of all true religiosity is this thing that creates compassion based upon the golden rule. The golden rule. It's a law, isn't it not? The way they've... Very much a law. You see, the problem is is that, folks, I don't do to others as I want them to do to me. <sighs> the golden rule literally is like a golden ruler that beats, wraps my knuckles on a daily basis. And you know what? If you're honest, it, it wraps yours, too. Because you don't do a pretty good job. In fact, you don't do a good job at all of living up to the golden rule, do you? No. Any amount of golden rule keeping, will that save you? 
No. Well, again, John, you just sound to me like a narrow-minded fundamentalist. Let's continue. Um, And this is absolutely crucial to the monotheisms, too. Uh, There's a famous story about the great Rabbi Hillel, the older contemporary of Jesus. A pagan came to him. Notice how she hooks him in with Jesus. Confucius, 500 years before Jesus. Rabbi Hillel, a contemporary of Jesus. Okay, you know, she's basically trying to make, you know, make Jesus look like he's in league with Confucius and Rabbi Hillel here. Nice sleight of hand, um, but not true. And offered to convert to Judaism if the rabbi could recite the whole of Jewish teaching while he stood on one leg. Hillel stood on one leg and said, that which is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. That is the Torah. The rest is commentary. Go and study it. Um, and go- Great story. Allah, no gospel, no Christ, no faith, no trust, no forgiveness of sins, no cross. You don't need a cross. You don't need Christ dying for your sins if her concept of religiosity is true. You just need a good savior, not a good example, not a savior. You need an example. So Jesus' Jesus's life is commentary on do, un, do unto others as you would have them do to you. If the, if, the, if the golden rule is the central theme of scriptures, then the purpose of Jesus' life is all about just living by the golden rule. Right? Jesus' Miss Manners? That's right, Miss Manners. <laughs> Go and study it. It was what he meant. He said, in your exegesis, you must make it clear that every single verse of the Torah is a commentary a gloss upon the golden rule. Oh, and see, that's the problem. No, see, ma'am, you're wrong. I, I beg to differ. I beg to differ, and I'm going to use Jesus' own words to differ. Okay? Um, if you're familiar with uh, Luke, uh, the, the story of uh, Jesus' resurrection from the Gospel of Luke, um, we, we learn about Jesus on the road to Emmaus. Okay? So here we got a competing idea, okay? Is all of Scripture a a gloss, as she said, a commentary on the golden rule, or is it about Christ? What does that say? Verse. Verse, okay. Luke 24, starting at verse 13. Road to Emmaus. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. So Jesus is raised from the dead. A couple of disciples are on the road, road to Emmaus. And, you know, they've left Jerusalem and they were walking and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And they said to them, and he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you talk? And they stood still looking sad. And and one of them said, named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And then Jesus said to them, what things? And they said to him, well, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed and word before God and all people and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and to be crucified. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. 
Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things have happened, and moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had that they had seen a vision of angels, and said and uh, who said that he was alive. Now, some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him, Jesus, they did not see. And Jesus said to them. Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all of the scriptures, the things concerning himself. The things concerning himself. Well, Jesus, he, he, you know, he probably just had a God complex. You know, because he really acts like um, uh, that the scriptures are about him. But uh, are they? Who are they really? Is, is it really about a commentary on the golden rule? Or is it about Christ and him crucified? Okay, let me read another passage. Okay. Okay, so if you, there it is, John 5. We are in the Gospel of John, chapter 5. Okay. Jesus speaking. The verse we want to get to is in for, at verse 40. But remember the three most important things about reading Scripture. Context, context, context. So Jesus in John, chapter 5, says these words. I can do nothing on my own, as I hear I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of, the, of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the, and the Father who sent me, he has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Well, there's that belief thing that she said didn't come about until the 17th century. So Jesus here, speaking to these Jews who are listening to them, saying that they don't have the word of God abiding in them. These are people who read the Torah regularly. If anyone knows God's word, it's these Jews, right? And he's saying they don't even have the word abiding in him. These are the very same people who believe that the golden rule is the, is, is the central theme of Scripture and that all of Scripture is commentary and gloss on the golden rule, right? Because Rabbi Hillel was a contemporary of Jesus. Okay? And he says to those Jews... You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe in the one whom he has sent. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And yet it is they that bear witness to me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you might have life. So which is it? Is, is the golden rule the central theme of scriptures and everything else is commentary on the golden rule? Or is... 
the th- central theme of Scripture, Christ crucified for our sins. I'd say B. You going with B? I'm going with B. Yeah, you know what? And here's the deal, folks. I'm betting, I'm betting all of my chips on B. Every last one of them. I'm not going to hedge my bets. It's all or nothing. Christ and him crucified for my sins. And that's what Scripture invites us to do. Let's continue with Karen here. Let me back her up so that we can, we can hear her in context on this little point that she's making. ...teaching while he stood on one leg. Hillel stood on one leg and said, That which is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. That is the Torah. The rest is commentary. Go and study it. Um... <laughs> And go and study it. It was what he meant. He said, in your exegesis, you must make it clear that every single verse of the Torah is a commentary, a gloss upon the golden rule. Uh, Nope. If you're doing your, your exegesis right, everything is a gloss and a commentary on Christ crucified for our sins. For the scriptures, according to Jesus Christ, bear witness to him. He is the center, the substance, and the focus of Scripture, not the golden rule. The great Rabbi Meir said that uh, any um, interpretation of Scripture which led to hatred and disdain or contempt of other people, any other people whatsoever, was illegitimate. St. Augustine made exactly the same point. Really, can you point that one out to me in Augustine? Because he was a firm guy who, t- who actually wrote against heretics, specifically against Pelagius and his heresy. We continue. Scripture, he says, teaches nothing but charity. And we must not leave an interpretation of Scripture until we have found a compassionate uh, uh, interpretation of it. And this struggle to find compassion in some of these rather rebarbative texts is a good dress rehearsal for doing the same in ordinary life. Well, there you go. Compassion, compassion, compassion. uh, Not Martin Luther, but uh, Walter Martin, once talking about liberals, he, you know, he he said that uh, the difference between a Christian and a liberal is pretty much can be summed up this way: a Christian would say God is love, okay, you know, speaking about an attribute of God, whereas a liberal would say love is God. Distinctly different, and I think that's what we got going on here. But now look at our world, uh, and we are living in a world that is uh, where religion has been hijacked. Uh, By whom? Religion has been hijacked. She's redefined religion so that any religion can be true based upon the test does it create compassion. doesn't matter what the stories are or the facts are, just as long as it produces compassion. That'll tell you whether or not a religion is true. Are they living the centrality of the golden rule? Where terrorists cite Quranic verses uh, to justify their atrocities where instead of uh, taking uh, Jesus' words, uh, love your enemies, uh, don't judge others, uh, we have the... Spe- well, there we go. I've, I'm just judging her, man. I must not be taking Jesus seriously. ...of Christians endlessly judging other people, uh, endlessly uh, using Scripture as, as a way of arguing with other people, putting other people down throughout the ages... 
<clears throat> Here's the deal. I want to make this really clear. Karen Armstrong is somebody whom Christ died for. We love her as a fellow human being, and we want to reach out to her with the true gospel of Jesus Christ and with the real love of God. But her ideas that she's putting forward are false. They're not actually true. It's nice sounding, and it's feel good, and it sounds really inclusive, but it's actually false. It's not truly true. It is absolutely the opposite of true. How come? Because what she says contradicts the word of God. And the authority for the word of God comes through Christ. Christ himself claimed that the Torah and the prophets were God's word. And he promised to give special revelation to the apostles regarding their ability to recall his teaching and what they taught. And so everything focuses and hinges on Christ. We don't have any less of an opinion of Scripture than what Christ has, period. If you do, you're wrong. And what she's saying clearly contradicts the word of God because Christ says that it's the word of God and he proved it by raising himself from the dead. So... It sounds loving, it sounds compassionate, it sounds kind, but because it's false, it's the opposite. It's neither loving nor compassionate nor kind. It leaves people in their sins, and it leaves people then open to and subject to the judgment of God because they don't hear the true gospel, that Christ died for their sins, repent and believe the good news. Uh, religion has uh, been used to oppress others, uh, and this is because of human ego, human greed. We it's because we're sinful by nature. We have a talent as a, as a species for messing up wonderful things. That's because we're not wonderful species. <laughs> the species itself is tainted with and marred by and completely sinful by nature. So uh, the, the traditions also insisted... And this is an important point, I think, that you could not and must not confine your compassion to your own group, your own uh, nation, your own... I agree. As Christians, we're ambassadors of a completely different kingdom. We, uh, we Christians in America hold dual citizenship. And our primary citizenship is the kingdom of God. My, my citizenship as a United States citizen, completely secondary. And it should not limit me to reaching out to those of other tribes, other nations, other people outside of my own little comfort zone. Co-religionists, your own fellow countrymen, you must have what one of the Chinese sages called Rian Ai, concern for everybody. Love your enemies. Uh, Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I'm with you always, even into the end of the age. Right? It's a little truncated version of the... Uh... <clears throat> Honor the stranger. We formed you, says the Quran, into tribes and nations so that you may know one another. And... Quoting uh... the wisdom of the Quran. This, again, this universal outreach is getting subdued in the strident uh, use of religion, abuse of religion, for, uh, for, for, for nefarious gains. Now, I've lost count of the number of taxi drivers who, when I say to them what I do for a living, inform me that religion has been the cause of all the major world wars in history. Wrong. 
Uh, the cause of our present woes are political. Uh, but Glad to hear that uh, religion isn't... Uh... <sighs> but make no mistake about it. Uh, religion is a kind of fault line. And when a conflict gets uh, ingrained in a region, uh, religion can get sucked in and become part of the problem. Our modernity has been exceedingly violent. Um, yeah, and let's see. Atheistic communism killed how many millions of people in the 20th century? I mean, would, could you call atheistic communism a religion? It behaves like one, doesn't it? Where the state is God. Between 1914 and 1945, 70 million people died in Europe alone as a result of armed conflict. We've, we, and, it, and so many of our um, institutions, even uh, football, which used to be a pleasant uh, pastime. She's referring to soccer for you Americans. Let me translate that for you. Yeah, I, and you Brits who are <laughs> saying, yes, we understand what football is. I actually enjoy uh, British football. Really exciting game if you if you get to if you really get to understand it. My daughter played football, soccer, uh, you know, for a term, and it was just a fascinatingly amazing sport. Fast pace, lots of lots of uh, action and violence too. Not quite like American football, but no, seriously, it was really good. My daughter, her 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 job, they her coach named her position the 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 job of the pest. Her job was to get into the mind of the the, the guys, the gals who were playing forward for uh, uh, for the opposing team, and boy, she did a great job at that. Wow, I I could almost do a whole show on that. It was really she was, and they went to the they went to the final, final, final playoffs. It was amazing. They ended up taking runner up. The other team that they played was uh, a lot more physical and, and almost to the point of cheating. But anyway, that's a different story. Why am I talking about this? <laughs> Moving along. Uh, has now, uh, now causes riots where people even die. Uh, and it's not surprising that religion, too, has been affected by this violent ethos. And there's also a great deal, I think, uh, of religious illiteracy around. Uh, oh, amen to that. <laughs> people uh, seem to think, uh, now equate religious faith with believing things. Oh, that's it. Religious faith equals believing things. In a way, she's right. That's a misconstruction. But uh, saving faith is not just a mere assent to historical facts. But the historical facts are fundamental to true saving faith. When we say that Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate, that's not myth. That's fact. That's historical fact. And what was he doing? He was dying for your sins. So, but I don't think she sees it as that way. These credos are just not important. They're not necessary. Who cares if it's true whether or not Jesus died for your sins? Are you living the golden rule? Who cares about Pontius Pilate and walking on water and, and being raised from the dead? Do you, do you, are you following the golden rule? As though that, we call religious people often believers, as though that was the main thing that they do. Yeah, they, actually they do. And belief always has an object. If that object is Christ, that's true saving faith and belief. <laughs> See what's going on here? Uh, anyway, I think I'll leave it off here. I think you got the flavor for it. What I'll do is I'll put a link up to the rest of this uh, this TED Talk. 
at Fighting for the Faith. And when you when you log when you log into the website, it'll, it'll talk about Karen Armstrong, and that that text will be a link. So there you have it. Uh, a good sermon in Christianity under attack. Now tomorrow we'll go through some more listener email, and I'm I'm trying to get some guests on the show for this week. It's a little tough pulling some people together. I mean, what's with this holiday? Hey, you folks out there, you know, just because it's a holiday doesn't mean that you can't come on my show. <laughs> I'm kidding. So anyway, um, so we'll leave off there. If you guys would like to email me, you can. You can talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. Until tomorrow, God bless. We'll talk to you then.